so uh, during the week, Kirk contacted me and he asked me uh, what I was preaching on because he needed to choose some songs for us to worship. And so I told him I'm preaching on the archetypes of the Antichrist. Good luck. <laughs> I think they did all right. Let's, let's thank the Lord for our worship team. So... We're going to dive in and do a quick recap. We're uh, in the series on Daniel, and I've realized it's like we're running into injury time almost every week, and I really want to give some room because of what we're looking at. Like today, we're looking at like up close and personal, the beasts. Um, and, uh, and so today's worship was just like getting us in the right space of knowing who's the king, who rules, who reigns. You know, these passages are in Scripture so that we might learn, be wise, and know how to live, especially in our day and age. So I want to show you that this is not just two and a half thousand years old. It really speaks to where we are. Um, but we need to start and do a quick recap on Daniel chapter 7. Remember Daniel chapter 7, you're in the courtroom, this is judgment day, this is the end, this is the end of the matter, this is the finish, except the end happens at least twice, um, <laughs> because in the prophetic you get this vision that has multiple applications, it's no less true again and again and again, and, uh, and then we see, we saw the humanity of the kingdom of God, it's not all just up in the clouds, in fact, in the clouds, with the clouds of heaven, is what? The Son of Man, this enigmatic figure who is king, and we see the humanity, he is the son of Adam, as it were, of the king himself. He represents all humanity. This is emphatically universal. Daniel's not seeing a Jewish king, even though he's given a Jewish title. So he's got Jewish roots, but he's a universal king. And uh, this king incorporates all his people into reigning with him. And so the passage uh, gave us some of that. I'm not going to go into the detail. So some of the applications include that we are his people. We belong to him. The people of the Most High, the people of the Son of Man. Uh, we are a holy people. He shares his name and nature with us. We are a warfare people. And we're going to unpack this more. But we saw in Daniel 7, we'll see it again in Daniel 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. There's conflict, there's warfare, there's opposition, especially coming against the holy people of God. And then when we compared some of the Son of Man passages that Jesus did that relate to this, we saw that we reign not like the Gentiles and the lords of the, but we reign by giving ourselves for and serving the world. Um, that's where you're going to find real authority from heaven released on earth. You want authority, you exercise it for others, not over them. So, Quick little reading is about 75 verses in Daniel chapter 8. No, it's not quite that long. But we dive again. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. So remember, in the first year, he had one. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, 
in the province of Elam, in the vision I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal. The horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other and grew up later. As I watched the, I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south, no animal could stand against it. None could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased, and it became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram, shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground, trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. This is really interesting, huh? And the goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn broke off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. More apocalyptic language. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land, understand, Palestine, Israel. It grew until it reached the host of heavens, and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord, literally trying to be the opposite of the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord. His sanctuary was thrown down. Because of the rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it, in a sense, surrendered. They succumbed to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, how long will it take for this vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation. That could mean abomination, rebellion, terrible thing that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings and then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. And while I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near to the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. People say, I saw angels this morning, hello. Um, Sometimes that can be quite an overwhelming experience. Son of man, interesting. He now gets addressed as human being. It's clearly an angelic presence talking to a human one. He said to me, understand the vision concerns the time of the end, which of course can happen many times. While he was speaking to me, it's not in the passage, but I'm just reminding you of what we've learned so far. I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because this vision concerns the appointed time of the end or when the end is appointed. 
The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. The one powerful horn, by the way, was Alexander the Great, 333 B.C. And the large horn between its eyes was the first king. The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent the four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. And we know Greek broke up into four kingdoms, including one in the Egypt, which is called the Ptolemaic dynasty, and the one in the Syria area heading out towards Babylon, which was the Seleucid one. In the latter part of their reign, when the rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue will arise. He will become very strong, but, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper. He will consider himself superior. And when they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed and not by human power. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been given to you is true. But seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. Remember, he's somewhere in the 500 B.C.s. I, Daniel, was worn out. I was wiped out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. He was still employed by the king, but it's unlikely that he still had that same high status he enjoyed previously because the same king didn't know who he was later. So he had become a minor bureaucrat somewhere in the system. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. So what luck has Cray got if the guy who gets the vision is going, I haven't got a clue. Good luck, good luck. In any case, in Daniel 7 and 8, Daniel's having these visions about the end. As I said, for example, very clear, Judgment Day, Daniel chapter 7, it's about the end, it's about the final judgment, it's about the verdict being issued in favor, but yet it happens in the middle of history. And so there's this sense in which there's this bifocal application. And so on Judgment Day, we know part of that, in a very real sense, was when Jesus died on the cross. And that Judgment Day also still waits us in the future. So allow me a short detour. Got to concentrate now. This is a detour to set the scene before we get to these beasties. If you had time to read Mark 13 through 16, so those four chapters of the Bible, and if you just read Mark 13, you would assume Jesus is talking about the end times. You would just assume that. You'd read that. It's about the temple starts to fall and then all kinds of stuff, and brother betrays brother, and you would think Jesus is talking about the end times. And you would be right. But now, stay with me. Let me show you this bifocal application. Now, we're doing this in English, so it's a little bit difficult, but it does tie up in the Greek. So in Mark 13, you read, Jesus says that the temple stones will be torn down. In Mark 15, we read that the temple veil is torn from top to bottom and, in a sense, opens the temple up access to God. 
We read the disciples will be delivered up. We read in the exact phraseology, Jesus is delivered up. We read the disciples will go before the councils. We read Jesus goes before the council. The disciples will be beaten. Jesus is beaten. The disciples before the governors. Jesus is before the governors. The disciples led away. Jesus is led away to be crucified. Brother will betray brother. Jesus is betrayed by his own disciple, Judas. People will flee to the mountains. The disciples flee as Jesus is arrested. The sun will darken. The sun goes dark at his crucifixion. And Jesus said in the garden, uh, uh, it says in, in Mark 13, watch for the master to come. Don't sleep. And he again in the garden says, watch and pray with me. And then when he comes, they are asleep. Those are Greek words that are paired verse by verse by verse by verse. And they're actually more examples. I, I, I just fitted it all on one page. So in a sense, can you see... Then even when you were reading the original language, you would have seen Jesus is fulfilling his own prophecy in the middle of time, even though he's talking about the end of time. That there is this bifocal application that reaches its fulfillment. The kingdom of God is here when Jesus comes, dies for the sins of the world, is vindicated in glory, raised to life on the earth, and pours out His Spirit upon us. The Christ event is the activation of God's kingdom on the earth. And so we live since that moment in the last days. We live in the end times. There isn't another few pimples and things that are going to come before the end. Now there is going to be a last Antichrist, Sheer logic tells you that. But in the same way that some of these kingdom dynamics will play out, and if you go through history, you'll see time and time again, people will think, surely this must be it. And they're partly right. It's defined by the same historical characteristics. So what do you do? You live in the presence as if this is a kingdom warfare, right as if Jesus were coming right now. You live today as if it could be today. And you face the beast as if this is the beast. What does this mean? Jesus is the prototype or the archetype. He's the, he's the foreshadowing and he's the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. Like, you want to know the kingdom of God? Look at Jesus. There it is. And so he says... Repent. The kingdom of God is here. Who's here? He's here. It's wrapped up in his person, his words, his actions. But remember, especially in the space of kingdom, that whatever happens to Jesus also happens in some way to his followers. And ultimately, Romans 8, finally, to creation itself. So, for example, in Romans chapter 6, we read, we have died and we've been raised with him, verses 3 and 4. What happened to Jesus happens to us. Ephesians chapter 2, we've been seated with him in the heavenly realms. We share in his kingly rule. This is prophesied in Daniel 7. It's happening now. There's a sense in which not one day you'll be seated with him, but in kingdom authority, we're already in Christ seated in him. 
This means the glorious future, the kingdom of God, is to some degree present and potentially here whenever a believer in Jesus is in the room. Think about that. The kingdom of God is here whenever a believer of Jesus is in the room. Why? Because as happens to your king, so happens to his subjects. And the authority he carries, he delegates to his people. This is really quite radical. But it's, it's, it's what this incorporating language means. It's what Paul's trying to get us to understand. The new, remember I said, it's like you've got an atom in Daniel, and it blows wide open when you get to the New Testament. So salvation, healing, mercy, justice, jubilee, potentially here in and through us. Isn't that great? End of detour. And so we're going back to the beasts when it's just you and me. I said the city don't feel me. Sorry, apologies to Shekinah. We're going back to the beasts. But we needed to just kind of clear that language. The song says back to the beach, by the way. But uh, I had to have a little bit of humor in the archetypes of the Antichrist, okay? So, chapter 7, we got more detail about these unpleasant fellows. And we encountered this fourth very nasty, indescribable beast. Chapter 8, we're taken back to those same kingdoms. So if you look at chapter 2, remember the, the statue and the different metals. There was gold, it represented Babylon. There was silver, represented Medo-Persia. There was uh, bronze, was Greece, and iron and clay was Rome. And then Babylon, again, represented in chapter 7 by weird beasts, you know, a winged lion with a human mind, then a bear raised up, a leopard with four wings, an indescribable beast that had iron teeth. So in other words, it was almost like mechanical. It wasn't all biological. Um, and, and we see in chapter 2, they are confronted by, overthrown by, they are versus, they are anti the supernatural rock. They are against the Son of Man and His people. But in chapter 8, we're going to, we've just read about the ram and the goat. Now, it's very clear in the passage who they are. The Bible actually tells you this is Medo-Persia and this is going to be Greece. And so, that's where this passage focuses on today. So, that's very important to remember because people want to jump into like kingdom coming and that kind of thing. Notice this passage doesn't end with, and he'll be done away with, and the kingdom of God will come. Why? Because another dominion is actually coming into this space. And so, yes, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome will give way to the kingdom of God during the time of the Roman Empire. So the final focus of this passage then is on one of the horns that grew out of the four horns of the goat. Well, that replaced the one big horn of the goat. Okay. Now, the horns simply mean strength, they, and, they, and they represent different kings. 
or sometimes dynasties, in this case, individual rulers. And so this vision focuses on him. Now, I, there simply isn't time to go verse by verse. And there's actually a lot of really interesting stuff that ties up with kind of known historical, you know, secular record, etc., and a lot with the intertestamental readings uh, that we have both from Jewish tradition and now also from the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which, I mean, is just like, the Dead Sea Scrolls are taking scholarship to another whole level of understanding how profoundly Jewish all this stuff is. So, let's talk about this last, um, last horn. Um, and uh, why focus on him? The last goat horn. From history, his name was Antiochus IV. He's part of the Seleucid dynasties. They, were, they reigned in the Syrian region. Uh, and Egypt, the Ptolemaic dynasty, often fought with this Seleucid dynasty. And so a lot of the battles that you read about in these, and especially when you go to chapters uh, 10 and 11, you're reading about all this to and fro between these guys. Um, and it's about money, and it's about sex, and it's about power. They give each other their daughters in marriage, and they form alliances, and then those alliances uh, fall apart, etc. It's all very helpful stuff because we're getting slowly more and more historical detail as we go into the book of Daniel. Now, why are we being given this historical detail? Because in that detail, we will discover prototypes, archetypes. In the same way that when you go to Jesus, you discover the prototype of the kingdom. You discover this is what the spirit of the kingdom of God looks like on the earth. When we start looking at these kingdoms, we're going to start discovering archetypes of what the spirit of the enemy looks like on the earth. Okay? So Antiochus IV came to power in about 175 BC. He was not directly from a royal family, but he used trickery and flattery, conflicting alliances and intrigue to gain power before then consolidating power. So he made promises with this guy and this guy and this guy. And then basically when they were all set up, he betrayed all those promises and then did his own thing in any case, but he had done it in such a way that he had pulled the rug out from underneath him, gained the traction, had command of the armies, and by the time they realized what his trickery had done, he had taken over that, uh, that kingdom. So he was, he was a distant royal relative, you know. He would be like Prince Harry's third cousin, um, who made his way to suddenly take the throne. So initially, he tried to syncretize Greek and Jewish religions. He tried to get them to worship together and do this thing. He, he was trying to bring this all together. But of course, you know, he wants tolerance and understanding. He soon learned that syncretizing monotheism means forsaking it. You know, if there's one God, he is who he is, and you don't get to decide who he is. And if you try and mix that with something else, the only way you syncretize monotheism is you abandon it. You can't add him to some pantheon. You try that, you've given up on him. And so he soon learned that the Jews would not do this. So what did he do? He gave himself the title of 
Antiochus Epiphanes, which the locals said was Epimenes. Epiphanes means the manifestation of the glorious God. Epimenes means mal-o, madman, complete loon. He was enraged that the Jews refused him to call him by this title or worship him or burn incense or do whatever else the other beasts also required and make offerings to him. And so he came with more armies and he forced them. And this is over several iterations and invasions and oppressions and that kind of thing. And he forced them, to, forced them on pain of death to stop circumcising their sons, to eat pork, and to work on the Sabbath. I've got a typo here. It says eat proc. Um, and then he punished them with financial exclusion by printing them with coin, which he knew they would not use. So he put Antiochus Epiphanes on his coin, and he said, this is the only coin you are allowed to use. You know, it says, in God we trust. No, it said Antiochus Epiphanes. And so the Jews would not use this money. They refused. And those who refused... And, may, and many did, but many who resisted this were massacred. And so Jerusalem suffered this oppressive tyranny enforced through military power. It got worse. In 169 BC, he ultimately invaded the temple precinct desecrated the entire place, offered unclean animals, including a pig, on the altar of Yahweh. This involved several firsts for the holy people. This was not just Pharaoh seeking slaves. This was not the Philistines uh, contesting territory. This is not Nebuchadnezzar assimilating into Babylon. This is a demand to stop being the holy people of God. You may not worship him. You must make me what you have made God to be in your life. And if you will not, then I will turn all the machinery of empire against you. And so Daniel understands this has become a fight with heaven itself. And even some of the Stars who shine in heaven are apparently pulled down, torn down. These are the faithful ones who served, radiant on the earth, as it were, so radiant that they pictured as the stars of heaven, who get cast down, who die, persecuted, massacred. And so the fight against heaven by destroying God's people on earth. This kingdom is built on people who gain, attain power and influence. Oh, by the way, let me quickly give you a, his, a historical proscript for you, else you're going to wonder. Let me just close the loop. It's not on the slide. Antiochus lost power because greater geopolitical squabbles, you know, with the Ptolemies, and there was a new thing emerging from Italy somewhere called Rome, 
and uh, they, they'd made an alliance with a group of people on the island of Rhodes, and now they were sending out raids all over the place. And so he just lost interest in Jerusalem. But of course, he had to move his forces elsewhere. And so his influence in Judea and Jerusalem was broken by what is called an armed, the Maccabean Revolt. The Maccabees started as basically terror cells in the countryside, but eventually they grew large enough to actually form military units that would attack the strongholds of the Seleucid governors and that kind of thing all over the place. And ultimately, they took on Jerusalem. And when they took on Jerusalem, they succeeded. I mean, many died. It was, it was brutal warfare. But they succeeded in cleansing the temple and they rededicated the altar on the 25th day of the month of Kislev, which Jews to this day celebrate as Hanukkah, the relighting of the menorah. So that's the historical postscript. So quick recap. His kingdom gains power and influence using flattery, deception, but ultimately aims at establishing direct control. kingdom deploys, insists on, invests in false religion. It cannot be content to let you worship the true God because that will subvert absolute human power. There can be no absolute human power whenever God's people are present. They are the salt of the earth. They are the light of the world. That power will not prevail. He uses economic coercion and exclusion from trade and commerce, sometimes by controlling the currency or whatever it is. And it enforces itself through military might. This is an apex human ruler, an apex human empire, or in apocalyptic language, what the beasts of human empires become when they emerge from the chaotic, roaring seas of humanity. That's what comes out of the sea. Remember, in heaven one day, there's no longer any chaotic, roaring humanity. There's no longer this kind of sea. So what are we meeting? We are being introduced, says Joyce Baldwin, an Old Testament scholar and commentator, to a recurring historical phenomenon. Now, the details will differ. And when you read about the next law of the Antichrist, you think, but the story is different. Precisely. We're dealing with an anti-Messiah, an anti-Savior. And so John explains, dear children, this is the end times. This is the last hour. As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, hello, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know we're in the end times. This is how we know we're in the last hour. And this was written 2,000 years ago. So what's profound about Daniel's vision is not only does God show him the Christ, God shows him the warfare around the kingdom. And he gives him these 
human archetypes, these human prototypes, so that you can know whatever age you're in, this is not the kingdom of God. You're able to spot a mile away something that is not bringing the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. No matter what they say, no matter what they promise, no matter what intrigue they, they bring, no matter what power they have, no matter how impressive their bombs and their guns and their financial clout, you know what the Spirit of Jesus looks like. And Daniel says, you know what the opposite is as well. You know, for some of us in this room, we look back on the sun will never set on the British Empire. That was supposedly, you know, it's like the ANC will rule until Jesus comes, someone said. <laughs> Except he started another party now. <laughs> oh, gosh. You know that the colonial powers, and this is true of France and England and Italy and Spain and all the rest of it, they sent their soldiers and their missionaries under the same mandate. They would do what they did for God, for king, for commerce and civilization. They assumed their superiority in their pride, their boastfulness. And that superiority, which is normally just military and money, conferred on them the right to extend their empires over whomever they could subjugate. You know, if you think about this money and military might, control of currency, control of land, and issues of religion, some of the most inhuman wars in our day are still being fought over the same issues. And if you're thinking that what they need is bigger guns just to bring the kingdom of God, whether it's in Israel or the Ukraine, you're in the wrong spirit. You're in the wrong spirit. You're in the spirit of James and John who said, shall we call down fire on hev from heaven on that Samaritan village? You don't know the heart of the man from Nazareth. You don't know why he came. If you're thinking more money and better bombs are going to bring the kingdom of God, can I appeal to you to return to Jesus? You don't know who Messiah is. You've got an anti-Messiah. And that's playing out in history in our day. And so the prophetic voice of the church must call out every empire, every ruler who dehumanizes, exploits, oppresses, exalts, enriches themselves at the, at the expense of many and uses their money and financial clout, military might, and propaganda machines to drive this forward. We must be the salt and we must be the light. We are the people of the Lamb. We are to be a different presence on the earth.
That's our prophetic calling. Does this make sense? You see why this is not irrelevant? Conspiracy theories about the last days. And, and I know, we'll come back to the 2,300 days. He gets even more into symbolic numbers later. Now, the fact is that in the story, there's a possibility that those 2,300 days represents the time that Antiochus had governance of Israel. Could be quite close. But understand the way archetypes work. And people then want to wrap that forward and suddenly come up with grand schemes in the last seven years of world history that this is going to happen and that's going to happen and then the altar will be cleansed and this will happen and you get these fantastical schemes and they don't understand how the apocalyptic works. Jesus gives himself for the many. He lays down his life to seek and to save the lost. This is the spirit of the Son of Man. And in Matthew 10, and I haven't got time to read it all, but from verse 7 to 15, Jesus says, go proclaim this message. The kingdom of God is near. It's, it's at hand. And then he explains what that looks like. It looks like healing. It looks like deliverance. It looks like freedom. It looks like being set free and cleansed. And he says, freely you received, freely give. And then he says, you know, you could almost put this there because it's for free. It says, so don't take gold or silver or copper. Take no money. Go penniless. No bag for the journey. No extra shirt or sandals or staff. Why? Because he's teaching them the kingdom of God does not need the tools of the Antichrist. Like if you can't do ministry without money, you will never be able to do ministry with it. Seriously. You will not if you don't know what it is to love someone with just the skin on your back, heaven help you when you've got lots of resources and power and clout at your disposal. It's teaching them, you, you don't need that stuff. Different spirit. No guns, no money. <laughs> Later he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Like what shepherd does that? The Messiah, this Jesus-spirited, Jesus-hearted Savior. He says, you're going to trust me. You read the book of Revelation, we've already seen that the victorious line is the lamb who was slain. And again and again, we find the lamb in the story with his followers. As each of the cycles of the book of Revelation come through, you get to the punchline part. And there the Lamb and His followers are present, bringing kingdom to whatever level of human chaos is going on in the rest of the book of Revelation. Sheep among wolves. You're going to serve. You're going to heal. You're going to raise. You're going to give. You're going to proclaim. And later they do take up offerings, vast amounts, given with radical generosity. But what was that for? It was for the poor, for the hungry, for those in prison, for hospitality, and for supporting those who gave themselves full-time to this work. You see, we are a warfare people, but our weapons are not the weapons of this world. 
1 Corinthians chapter 10. We struggle and fight, yes, but not against flesh and blood, Ephesians chapter 6. See, our warfare is so different. And the person you'll most fight is your flesh. Because your flesh wants to follow that other way. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God, says this same Apostle John, would later write the book of Revelation. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus as Messiah and come in the flesh, that is from God. He's the King. He's the Anointed One. He's the Christ. But every spirit that does not acknowledge, see the refusal of syncretism, because this is where it starts, does not acknowledge Jesus, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard is coming, and even now is in the world. The mistake we make is we think one day we'll start fighting all this nonsense. No, no, no. The battle is right now. The temptation to human power and the quest and its seduction and its lies is before us right now. It's in that little thing with the screen in your pocket. And it's calling you, the siren song, to say, come, follow this way. The spirit of the Antichrist. You, dear children, are from God. And you've overcome them. Because the one who is in you is greater than that one who's in the world. The one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. See, remember Daniel chapter 2, there's going to come a rock. He's going to break these kingdoms. And he won't do it by being like them. He'll destroy them by being the exact opposite. Greater is the one who is in you than that one in the world. You've got to hold that. You've got to hold that.